Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host this week, Chelsea White. Coming up on the show, we've got this. That, believe it or not, is a tune played on a harp made from (laughs) rat's whiskers. Only on this show can you have an item like that. And coming up, we've got a piece on the quantum theory of consciousness, plus new analysis of that last climate change report. And we have a story about Taylor Swift, and we're examining the targets for the next decade of space exploration. Excellent. What a show. Um, Joining us this week, not Taylor Swift herself, but we do have Sam Wong, Leah Crane and Adam Vaughan. Hello all. Hi. 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 Let's kick off. First, a reminder. If you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod20. Do go and check it out. Now, one of the biggest questions in science is around consciousness, explaining why we have a sense of felt experience at all. And we talk about this a lot in New Scientist and on the podcast. And we've got a particularly, well, bonkers idea this week. Um, Sam, you've been handling this story. Yes, uh, I've edited a story by Thomas Luton about the idea that quantum effects in the brain can explain consciousness, which is an, an idea that's been around for a while, but it's now back because there are some new experiments to support it. Okay. All right. So before we get into those, can you just give us the background? Like, what is the link or the purported link between quantum weirdness and consciousness? Okay. So um, according to some interpretations of quantum mechanics, a system can exist in multiple states simultaneously until the act of observing it distills the cloud of possibilities into a definite reality. So some people have suggested that in our brains, gravitational instabilities in the structure of space-time break the quantum superposition between particles, and this gives rise to consciousness. You still with me? No, but go go on. (laughs) So in the 90s, uh, the physicist Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff, who's an anesthesiologist, came up with a theory that they called Orchestrated Objective Reduction Theory, or ORC-OR, which is not much friendlier. But uh, anyway, they hypothesized that this quantum business happens in microtubules, which are these tiny polymers found in all of our cells that form part of the uh, cytoskeleton, which is the structural scaffolding of the cells. Okay, I mean... Like last time this was around, I remember someone saying or some people saying, that you know, the idea people like the idea because consciousness is this really weird, hard to understand thing. And then quantum physics, that's a weird, hard to understand thing. I know the two must be linked. Is that a fair criticism of the theory? And, and what's the evidence then? I think that's fair. But um, as one neuroscientist, Stephen Lorries, says in our story, it would be dogmatic to say that this is not worth looking at. So, of course, the onus is on the people who came up with the theory to come up with evidence to support it. And that's what they've done with these experiments using anesthetics. And anesthetics are really fascinating thing, aren't they? We don't really know how they work. Yeah, that's right. So um, we know that anesthetics um, suppress signaling between neurons in our brain, and we think we know which molecules they target, but how they actually turn off consciousness is still a mystery. And obviously, if you're wanting to explore and understand consciousness generally, then that's a really interesting thing to investigate. Yeah. Okay. So what does anesthetic do to microtubules, though, if anything? So apparently, if you shine light on microtubules, it gets very slowly re-emitted over several minutes, which they call delayed luminescence. And uh, this phenomenon is a bit strange, and the researchers think that there might be some kind of quantum effect going on here. And whatever is responsible for it might also explain the fundamental workings of the brain. 
according to this idea. So when they add anesthetic, it suppresses the delayed luminescence. So the the light gets re-emitted more quickly. And the difference is small, but if the brain exists at the threshold between the quantum and classical worlds, then even a small quenching could prevent the brain from processing information. Wow. And do we know if microtubules actually do anything other than, you know, something structural in the cell? Not really. I mean, there's, there's, still, <laughs> there's still a long way to go from these experiments because they're, they're just looking at microtubules kind of on their own. So there's a long way to go to show that microtubules have anything to do with consciousness or even it's still not, cl- not clear if these effects that we've seen in the lab are really to do with quantum physics or if they have any relevance to what happens in living brains. So, you know, it's still a bonkers theory, as you said, <laughs> very speculative fringe theory. But these experiments do suggest there's something worth exploring here. Sam, I'm probably being a bit dense, but this is the kind of what does it all mean question. If it is right, what bearing would it have for how we think and, you know, how we perceive, you know, how consciousness works? I don't know, what might it mean? Well, when I've asked that before, people have said that it means you can't simulate consciousness on a computer because you need this organic effect you only get with microtubules so that consciousness would only be something that a living being could have and not not that you could make artificially so your your question is what what does it matter that we that we, we we would understand where consciousness comes from that would be yeah, the probably, biggest that's question. a big enough deal in itself that uh, you know i want the utility i'm all about the applied science Sam. I want okay utility. how will this how will this save us from climate change that's what you're asking isn't it <laughs> i didn't for once i didn't even mention climate <laughs> This is all very fascinating. We'll put a link to that story in the show notes. Now we've got some wonderful audio treats coming up next, and I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Mainwaring, who's a musician and TV presenter, and he's just written a book called Everybody Hurts, which is certainly in the running for the best book title of the year. Uh, But it's not about REM, it's Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z, as in the unit of frequency Uh, Richard, thanks for joining us. So tell us about your infinite piano and why you've written a whole book about frequency. Well, thank you for having me on. This is such a pleasure and a a little bit daunting because I am a musician first. I'm not a scientist, but I've just got into this in such a way. I was teaching frequency and EQ to to a bunch of students who are music tech and I was trying to explain to them, you know, that frequency goes beyond the end of a piano because that's the most obvious one. You say A is 440 hertz so they can see that and then trying to I suddenly thought, hang on, what if what if that piano just went on one way forever? <laughs> yeah. How far up before you could stop, in theory, playing rainbows? And then the other way I was thinking, well, off the end of the piano, trying to explain to the students, you know, well, th- hang on, there's loads more frequencies off the end of the piano the other way, bass-wise. How far down before you could play the frequency of a tsunami or something like that? So that's that's where the idea came from. And I got into, I found this story about this whale that was singing at 52 hertz, the wrong frequency for all other whales to be able to understand it. And that, so that's where it started. And I thought, wow, this is... And I picked up a few stories along the way. And then I, I've been utterly fascinated from the lowest notes in the universe up to, you know, right up to the top end of molecules and atoms vibrating that make time itself. Okay, let's hear some. You've got some great examples. First, the rat's harp. Tell us about that, and then then we'll hear a clip. So I interviewed uh, a, a woman rat. called... Uh, <laughs> not a rat... <laughs> a woman called um, an auditory neuroscientist called Maria Geffen. Her first research project was to map, make an, a frequency map of rats' whiskers. And it turns out that if you shine infrared light on them, 
and you put a frequency sweep, you know, all the way down from the top, like that, certain whiskers will vibrate. They, they have a resonant frequency they vibrate at. So it turns out that a rat's whiskers are all tuned individually so that a rat can feel as it goes along, perhaps in low light, you know, perhaps in a tunnel or something, it can feel different gradations of, of perhaps a wall. And obviously, these whiskers will resonate at different times. And uh, what's amazing is the frequency range that a rat's whiskers are attuned to sits virtually uh, exactly in between uh, the notes of a normal guitar, bottom E <laughs> to a top E string. So I thought, oh, I can make a rat's harp. So obviously, these aren't tuned to what we would use in our Western scale. So it's a bit ethereal and a bit weird. So I thought, uh, what's a kind of rat song? Ring of Ring of Roses is the, you know, the Black yeah. Death and all of that type of stuff. So I, so I made a clip of Ring of Ring of Roses played by a rat whiskers harp. <laughs> It's strangely ethereal, isn't it? Kind of a. It really uh, is. I think my son said sweet and sewer, which I thought was quite, quite <laughs> nice. Quite nice, sweet and sewer. So, yeah. Uh, and I like the dripping water there as well. And staying with animals, we've got a cat's purr. So, what's this about? And what, what frequency do cats purr at? <laughs> so, I found some other fascinating left field research about. There was this experiment which was to damage bone, which is a bit horrible, with a power drill uh, with rabbits. And then the researchers found that if they put 12.5 hertz or 25 hertz or 50 hertz on this bone, the bone would heal quicker. What was the exact? The bone defects were repaired effectively in the group subjected to vibrations at frequencies of 12.5, 25 and 50 hertz, particularly 25 and 50 hertz. And cats purr at 50 hertz. So mm. the theory is that cats are actually kind of repairing themselves, are keeping their tissues and their bones healthy by purring at 50 hertz. And I thought that this can't be true. So I recorded my cat, Cusky the cat, and, and it turns out she does. So I recorded the cat. And then, of course, that 50 hertz, I think with all science, 50 hertz is meaningless, isn't it? What, well, 50 hertz, who knows what that is? So what I've done throughout the book is trying to explain that in terms of if we can hear that in our auditory memory. So I said, you know, think of um, another one bites the dust, you know, that da-da-dum, dum, dum. So yeah. da-da-dum, another one bites. That on the bass guitar is round 50 hertz. So I think we got a clip of that where you hear cusky purring and you can hear this note on the bass guitar as well. Here comes the capper. <laughs> I couldn't believe it is. She is purring at 50. And they don't purr only. I thought it was contentment, but apparently they, they purr when they're nervous. They can purr when they're hungry. They purr, my cat realized, purrs when she's eating. Um, so they, they're really weird things, aren't they? I'd like to hear remixes of uh, a lot of other songs with cat purr accompaniment now. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> um, look, there's loads in your book. And another one that jumped out at me was uh, the story of the bombing of Coventry by the Luftwaffe in World War Two. This seems at first completely out of the blue in a book on Hertz. But, uh, you know, it was one of the worst raids that Britain suffered in the war. But I had no idea about how it was nearly thwarted. So can you tell us yeah. about this? So there was this genius, this 28-year-old Oxford PhD student called R.V. Jones, and he realised that the Germans were broadcasting beams 
of 1500 hertz across the channel. And what, what the Luftwaffe bombers would do, would they would fly down the middle of two beams, one which was dots on one side and dashes on the other. So if they stayed in the middle of this beam, you could target this beam wherever you wanted and the bomber would fly down the middle and use another cross beam as well. They yeah. could you know, work their way along this. So he, RV Jones realized this and he said, well, we don't want to give the game away. So what we'll do is we'll make a British counter beam at the same frequency of 1500 hertz, which isn't, it's only a top G on the piano and we'll bend them away from their target and they'll just go and drop them in the countryside somewhere. What went wrong was that they didn't realize until they shot, uh, they found a shot down bomber a bit later was it wasn't 1500 hertz. It had been changed to like four musical notes above that from a G to a C. So the Germans then, f they, they filtered out the 1500. They were going along at 2000 hertz. They didn't even hear right. this counter beam, which had been put at 1500 uh, hertz. And RV Jones was absolutely devastated and, and mad. He said, whoever got that frequency wrong should have been shot. But I, I don't know whether we've got a, an example. I put it in the audio book that you can hear. So there's like, a, you hear the first beam, which is 1500 hertz. I wonder whether we've got that there. There we go. That's 1500 hertz. Okay, so that's the one. That's the counter beam. See, one, two, three, four. That's what the Germans were listening to. Here we come back down. And that's what the British had sent out as this counter beam, but the right. Germans didn't even hear it. So it was uh, really sad that those bombers got through just because of that difference between those two, two frequencies. Wow. Frequency warfare. Let's end with some physics. So Isaac Newton, famous amongst many other things for his theory of colour and separating white light into the colours of the spectrum. But what's this got to do with music and frequency? Well, I was amazed by this. So he, his, his book of uh, 1704, Optics, and there's the colour wheel in that. So apparently, you know, a lot of it, the, the colour in, in a rainbow is very kind of approximate, isn't it? You know, it's not, why are there seven colours in a rainbow? Well, there were only five up till then. Newton said, well, actually, I'd like seven because there are seven days of the week. There were seven planets in the solar system known then. And he liked the idea, you know, a bit like the music of the spheres. He thought there are seven music notes so why can't there be seven colors? So wow. he actually added two colors in to his to his color wheel, which is orange and indigo. Of course, indigo dye was very popular then as well. So he he adds those in to his color wheel. He adds orange, but there's a really weird thing which I won't go into great detail. But he he actually then says the two new colors should only have the semitones of the scale. So he he matches up the colors of the rainbow with the notes, the white notes on a piano. And of course, the other thing is the frequency of light is, was it 455 terahertz, I think, or something like that, red light and green light is 560 terahertz and, and that. So I thought, oh, I wonder if you were to transpose down into our range, what would a, you know, a, a rainbow must sound beautiful if you played it on my infinite piano, if I transposed it down. Uh, well, have a listen to this. This is what a piano, like, tra uh, a rainbow sounds like transposed into our range. Red, orange, yellow, blue, green, indigo, violet. Yeah, it's not it's not particularly pleasant, is it really? <laughs> well, I don't know. I I I like it now I know what it means. It adds some extra beauty to it. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, thank you Richard. Thanks for playing us those clips. Um all of this and much more is in Richard's book Everybody Hurts out now. Thanks Rowan. A real pleasure. 
Did you know that you can train your brain to make better decisions, help your brain solve problems, and think more logically and rationally? You can even teach your brain to help you think more critically and creatively. Incredible, right? Right. Uh, New Scientist Academy's brand new immersive CPD accredited How to Think Critically and Creatively online course explores it all and is available on pre-sale. This course will show you how your mind works to process the information it's fed. It will also warn you of some of the traps it's likely to fall into, the common cognitive biases and logical fallacies that can derail our thinking and the steps you can take to avoid them. With practical tips and real life advice for any level of learner, this course is a real eye-opener to the extent of which you can improve the way you think. Enroll for the introductory offer of £99 today and begin your exciting learning journey. Find our How to Think Critically and Creatively course via newscientist.com courses. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Okay, we're back and it's space time. Oh it's yeah. <laughs> it's the famous decadal survey, which is a big list of the priorities for space exploration made every 10 years by the U.S. National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. So Leia, what are the top missions to look forward to? Okay, so there are two big new missions that they've recommended. One of them is to go to Uranus, and the other is to visit Saturn's moon Enceladus. The top priority they've laid out is Mars sample return. But after that, there's these two new missions that I think are really exciting. I mean, I, I am really excited about Enceladus. But tell me why I should be excited about, uh, I'm going to pronounce this the American way, Uranus. Uranus. Why should I be excited about Uranus? There's a lot of reasons to be excited about Uranus. One of the big ones is that we haven't actually visited it in a really long time. It's never had a dedicated mission and the last time anything has gone by there was the Voyager 2 probe, I believe. So it's time wow. for us to learn about it. It's a super weird and underrated planet. And we know almost nothing about it because everything we know we've had to learn from ground-based telescopes. And the other thing is that researchers think that ice giants are a really common type of exoplanet in the universe. Maybe even the most common. So if we want to learn about exoplanets... We really have to learn about the ones that are in our solar system that have been pretty neglected so far. The survey also recommends several sample return missions, right? So from Mars and the moon. And are there also a couple other destinations in the solar system that might be happening? Yeah. So one thing that this survey does is it lays out the next round of New Frontiers missions, which are sort of relatively small missions for NASA and this survey laid out six of them. And the idea is that over the next decade, NASA will pick two. 
but a couple of those are sample return missions from Ceres, which is a dwarf planet in the asteroid belt, or from a comet, which we've never done before. And those are really fun sounding missions that sort of may or may not happen depending on what NASA selects. Okay, let's talk about Enceladus because it's a really exciting place. It's the it's this icy moon of Saturn, but it's uh, it's got this liquid water ocean underneath the surface that squirts out into space. And um, there's that earlier probe Cassini from NASA, and that did find didn't that find evidence of organic molecules in the plumes as it came out? Yeah, it did. It um, flew right through that plume and found some evidence of organic molecules, Yeah, which doesn't mean life, but those kind of molecules are really important for life. So it's really good for the prospect. Yeah. Um, and do we know what the new, the new mission is going to look for? Yeah. So Cassini was just a Saturn orbiter that sort of visited the moons. The new mission would be called the Enceladus Orbilander, which I really I like. I love that name. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like <laughs> some kind of uh, knight in a fantasy realm. Yeah, for sure. So that would sort of orbit Enceladus for a year and a half and collect samples from the plume, more samples than Cassini took. And then that same spacecraft would land and take more samples and basically look for signs of life. We've looked for signs that that ocean might be habitable, and we're pretty sure that it is. So now they want to go and look for actual life. That's the, the next step. We don't get the chance to talk about pop stars much on the show, but today we do. <laughs> Our life form of the week this week is uh, Taylor Swift. Yay! Actually, it's not Taylor Swift, the human and global music sensation, but it's a new species of millipede named after her. Yeah. So it's a funny story, you know, because the discovery of a new species of millipede, would <laughs> it just would never get coverage. Yeah, and not quite cared. breaking news. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I like millipedes, but, you know, it wouldn't make the news. But one of the scientists who, who made this uh, new description is a massive fan of Taylor Swift. And since the millipede species that's been described, this is only found in Tennessee, where she made her name as a country singer. They've named it after Taylor Swift. And it has had quite a lot of coverage as a result. So this thing is called Nanaria Swifty, or the Swift Twisted Claw Millipede, which is a really cool name. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of all there is to say about it, right? Yeah, unless uh, she does a song about it. That would be cool. <laughs> That'd be um, great. But, you know, the, the reason I wanted to mention it is that is to make the point about undiscovered species, because, you know, we hear a lot about how we're in the Anthropocene, this period of mass extinction of life on Earth. But even as we're in this period, we're in this, we're still very far from cataloging all the species that, that we know of on the planet. You know, that I think we've described about 1.2 million species, but there are at least 10 million species of plants and animals out there. And then that's not even counting microbes and bacteria and fungi, fungal species that, you know, be far more than that out there undiscovered. Yeah, we've got a long way to go. So does that mean that I could get a bug named after me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what I've I've always wanted to do to make this point is to try and catalogue the biodiversity of it, like a small piece of land, like a, a clump of soil in my back garden. So if there's any soil biologists listening who want to help, please get in touch because I'd love to do this. You know, we could just go through everything minutely and, and try and catalogue it. And I'm sure we'd find new species. I mean, soil is it's so taken for granted. And yet it's this really incredibly rich and biodiverse ecosystem, right literally under our feet. 
So then if you do find a new species, are you going to name it after me? <laughs> someone else? Uh, I think someone may be a bit more famous. Um, and <laughs> I did think about it because, you know, well, just going along the lines of female, brilliant female singers, I, I think I'd go for Amy Winehouse. So, you know, I'm sure we could get a springtail or a mite uh, named after Amy Winehouse. Okay, turning to climate now and going back to the recent IPCC report. Yeah, this is the one we talked about a couple of weeks ago in episode 113 of the show. And one of the key messages of the report, and it was very much billed as a now or never call for action, has apparently been misinterpreted because the document says that greenhouse gas emissions need to peak at the latest before 2025 and then start declining if we're to have any hope of staying at 1.5 degrees of warming. But that's not quite right. As previous reports said, emissions need to peak by 2015 and 2020. So, Adam, what is going on here? Yeah. So, I mean, funnily enough, I, I, I wrote pretty, I mean, that line jumped out of, to me. And that was actually what I chose as the sort of top line of my news story. And that emissions then need to go on to uh, fall by 43% by the end of the decade if we're, get, if we're to stand a chance of keeping to 1.5 degrees. So I, I had a chat with a couple of um, IPCC authors about this. I spoke to Glenn Peters at the Centre for International Climate Research in Oslo, and I spoke to uh, Yuri Rogel at Imperial College London as well. So there's diff- uh, views differ on what happened here. Yuri is, says that the statement in the IPCC report was accurate. He explains that the reason it came out like this is the scenarios for how we meet our climate targets are done in sort of five-year time steps. So that's why you end up partly with the, the confusion. But he does concede it's also convoluted and obviously doesn't didn't end up avoiding potential misinterpretation. Glenn takes a, a different stance. Um, he thinks it's problematic and basically looked at purely from a mathematical point of view, it's wrong. The point being that all the scenarios for meeting 1.5 degrees, you need a 25% reduction by 2025 at least. So that is clearly quite different to peaking at the latest before 2025. The complication is there's, there's no scenarios that go sort of as business as usual to 2025 and yeah. then we somehow get to 1.5. They don't exist. And that's what people have been kind of thinking. Oh, we've got three years to carry yeah. on and then we need to settle it. You know. Yeah, so, so that's probably, so one of Glenn's uh, sort of beefs with it as it were uh, not his phrase mine you know is it, it gives the impression you can essentially dawdle along to 2025 and then start to do stuff now what happened is basically all the scenarios actually for doing 1.5 have emissions peaking in 2015 or 2020 mm-hmm. so what the ipcc were trying to do was according to glenn was to avoid sounding irrelevant because obviously we know that emissions didn't peak in 2020 yeah. they've carried on growing in and so what they were trying to do is make the language was an attempt to sound relevant. But the problem is it's ended up with sending quite a confusing message. Now, yeah. what's difficult here as well is the IPCC operates under lots of constraints. So, for example, it, it, in its mandate, it, it can't have language that is too clear a call to action. And so that is partly why we ended up with this weird fudge of a, of a, of a phrase. Yeah. Um, I guess I sort of understand the impulse because, you know, climate fatalism can sort of paralyze people. And you feel like, well, if it's already done, we can't really do anything about it. But at the same time, I, I would prefer as much accuracy as possible, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the, what they were, there was this sort of tension between not wanting to say, make it too sort of political sounding that we we're stuffed and and we've got you know got out. But but that is the reality of it is that we haven't you know hit that twenty fifteen or twenty twenty peaking. 
Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel bad really that I, you know, no, I mean, no one really, no, I guess what's interesting is no, none of the sort of scientists at the time that it was being briefed really sort of raised issues about this. And I, I think that, I think the fact that the language got in through it as it, as it did and that no one really raised concerns in any of the sort of major press briefings at the time is a shame. I think it is problematic. So look, it leads immediately to this taboo around whether we can really meet 1.5 or not, because we've been told off before by even suggesting, oh, it's, you, you can't meet it. And, you know, there are, there are lots of concerns around this. But is it now time to admit? You know, if we needed to peak emissions in 2020, <laughs> and we ha- clearly haven't, is it now time to say, admit we can't make 1.5 degrees? I mean, look, you'll never get a climate scientist to go on the record and say that. But that said, I, you know, I think we are getting to the point where they are realising it's increasingly untenable to keep sort of pretending that we can. Jim Ski, the sort of chair of that recent um, report, he said at the time of its launch that, you know, if there's not enough new, significantly better climate plans from governments around the world by um, the time they meet again in Egypt for the next year in climate talks in November, then effectively 1.5 is drifting out of reach. So, you know, there's a bit of a ticking clock there. That's it for this week. Now do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. Thanks to our guests this week, Sam Wong, Adam Vaughan and Leah Crane. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Chelsea White. Bye for now and take care. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.